It's good to worship with you today. The session asked that before we start covering our next book, that I would take a few months to talk about two different topics. First, they asked that since so many new individuals and families joined CVP in the past few years, that I would speak for a couple weeks on the biblical principles of relationships. I mentioned that in the weekly email. And then second, for the exact same reason, they asked that I would next do a brief exposition of some of the basics of what it means to describe ourselves as reformed. But our guiding passage this morning is John 15, verses 8 through 12. I'd like to ask you to turn to that and and stand as we recognize that this is the Lord's holy and inspired word for us today. John 15, 8 through 12. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word, we come in humility, we come with receptivity, we want to be teachable, we want to be open to what your word has to say to us. Father, help us to have great respect, not only for what you have written, but also what you command. Help us to understand. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, when CVP first began 20 years ago, one of our reasons for forming the church was to recapture something that we felt that the mainstream church had lost. And it was easy. It was easy in those early years to define what we were and what we wanted to be through the various systems that we adopted, including systems like family integration and courtship and more. And you know, one positive thing about systems is that you always know what to expect because the rules are established. But a significant drawback to systems is that they can be rigid and often don't fully answer every situation. And furthermore, because of that rigidity, they often take on unintended and unnecessary baggage. Unlike a systems approach, a principles-based approach requires that we understand the Bible, that we know what God says and desires. It also requires that we exercise wisdom in discerning how to apply those biblical principles. And so the beauty and value of, of that kind of approach is that we can apply principles in any situation. So when it comes to talking about relationships and trying to understand the appropriate biblical principles, often the the parents in the room equate this with preparing their older children for marriage or navigating relationships in the teen years. And if they have younger children, the temptation is to give a sigh of relief and give thanks that at least they have a little while before they have to start thinking about such topics as teaching their children about appropriate behaviors and, and boundaries. But, but friends, the process of preparing your children for relationships, and I'm including friendships with the same sex and the opposite sex, as well as marriage, 
all begins at birth. And for the rest of you who aren't parents, that may not be thinking in those terms, but rather your own situations, these principles definitely apply to you too. And I believe that the only way that we will be successful as as Christians is if our focus is upon the Lord and upon his kingdom and our standard is his word. And that's why I shy away actually from trusting in systems like courtship or family integration as if creating a set of rules and practices will guarantee our success. There are certainly some systems that are more biblical than others. But you need to be able to say that what you're doing is based upon biblical principles and the absolute standards of God's word. Not all situations fit easily into systems, but all situations can be evaluated by biblical principles. And you'll notice in the bulletin that I've included a simple chart that some of you men may recognize from a guardian several years ago. There's nothing inspired about that chart. Uh, that's not from 3rd Corinthians or something. It's, it's just something, that, a visual aid to, to better see what I'm saying. And you'll note that the left side represents attitudes that are of the flesh. Exclusivity, impurity, a lack of control, and more. And the right side gives the opposite of these attitudes. Inclusivity, purity, self-control. I've called it a continuum because we often find ourselves somewhere in between these extremes. Our goal, however, should always be to move ourselves, our activities, and our relationships towards the right side of that spectrum or that continuum. We want relationships that are more sacrificial, that are more fervent, that are more inclusive, that are more God-glorifying, and so on. So that left side represents the things that our flesh desires and that our society often prizes and models, and the right side represents the fruit of the Holy Spirit and God's call to righteousness. And it helps us remember that this is not just about our families or our church's choice of standards and rules, but that this is a spiritual war between what our flesh wants and what God commands. That his principles are not options. And fighting for them is about championing something that is beautiful and ultimate and eternal and actually evangelistic. And so as we read in our morning's passage, Jesus' commandment was that we should love one another as he loves us. And I want to show you how what I've put on that chart are elements of what we see, examples of what we see in Jesus' love. The first is that it was inclusive as opposed to being exclusive. And what I mean by that is that he made the most diverse types of people comfortable in his presence, whether that diversity was due to age, such as children to the elderly, or class, the impoverished, as well as the leaders of the Sanhedrin, like Nicodemus, or vocation, fishermen and tax collectors, everyone, all who sought Jesus, found themselves valued, cared for, and loved. And of course, when I speak of inclusion, I do not mean by that idea that Jesus accepted and tolerated anything and everything. Nor do I necessarily mean that there weren't people 
with whom Jesus had closer relationships. But what I do mean is that as we look at his relationships and how his love fueled them, we see a few prominent characteristics. First, we see that Jesus broke down barriers. In reaching out to the outcast like the leper or the demon-possessed man or the bleeding woman in Mark 6, in extending his grace to the Gentiles, what he did was he eliminated the separation of those who were in and those who were out. By the grace of his salvific love, he created a single united community of those who are the redeemed. As Paul declares in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Then second, we see that Jesus restored and rebuilt what was broken. In other words, there was an intentionality and a direction in his love, before Jesus, people were lost, they were dead, they were self-serving, they were idolatrous, they harmed themselves and others, they warred against God. And I'm not just talking about the Pharisees or the prostitutes or the tax collectors, all were lost and were dead in their sin. And as God describes the nations in Isaiah 65, he says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, allowing their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. That is the Lord's description of all of us in sin and in our lost state. But Jesus, in his forgiveness, he transforms, he makes clean, all so that people will ultimately be able to live and love others like he loved inclusively breaking down barriers, establishing community and unity, and working intentionally to restore and to rebuild. And our relationships need to be inclusive in these ways. That applies to single men, single women, married men, married women, all of us. With regard to breaking down barriers, ask yourself this morning, am I more inclusive or am I exclusive? Am I breaking down barriers between those who are in versus those who are out? Or am I contributing to those barriers? Am I focused upon trying to fit in with a particular group? Or am I reaching out to the outcast? With regard to restoring and rebuilding, ask yourself, am I encouraging growth in Christ? Am I extending the comfort of God to those who are hurting? Am I living out the gospel in a way that points people to the word? Do I desire to see others mature, or do I just want to receive their attention and affirmation? You see, it's far too easy and tempting to be exclusive in our love, whether that applies to groups of people or those with whom we feel comfortable or by whom we want to be accepted Even the early church had trouble with this, as we saw in the book of Acts, where the Jewish converts continued to want to see the Gentiles a a different class of of Christian. I think the reason that exclusivity is easy and tempting is because at its core, really, Jesus' inclusive type of love is others-oriented, whereas exclusive love is typically self-centered. 
And single men and women, I especially want you to hear that last point because this is a time in your life when you will struggle greatly with the desires to fit in. We all do our entire lives, but this is like this concentrated moment. To be admired, to be affirmed. And I want to encourage you to first seek these things from the Lord. When you don't and instead ground these needs in some other person, you will find that your relationships begin to be determined more and more by your own pleasure and the desire to be loved and accepted and to feel important in someone else's eyes. And that that not only leads to conflict, just as James describes in James 4, where he says that we quarrel because we desire and we don't get what we desire. Right? We're always fighting for that. But it also leads us to unhealthily demand things from our relationships, perhaps unintentionally or unconsciously, things that others can't provide or because the Lord only can provide them or perhaps that they shouldn't provide. When I speak of things that only God can or should provide, I speak of those things that go to the core of your identity. What your best friend or some guy or some gal thinks of you or believes of you is important, but it does not determine your value or who you are. What matters is what God thinks of you and what he has done for you. He has made you a new creation. He has given you clean clothes. He has given you a new name. And he calls you to be like his son. And when I speak of things that others shouldn't provide, I speak primarily of the things that God has reserved for marriage between a man and a woman. Elizabeth Elliot in her book, Passion and Purity, states, unless a man is prepared to ask a woman to be his wife, What right does he have to claim her exclusive attention? And unless she has been asked to marry him, why would a sensible woman promise any man her exclusive attention? And so I exhort all of us, single and married alike, to have the type of inclusive love that we see in Christ. The second element of Jesus' love that connects us with that continuum in your bulletin is that Christ's love was pure. I'll give you an example of that in just a moment, but first let me define purity because it may not be necessarily what you think it is. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that we are not our own, but have been bought with a price, both our body and our spirit. And so Christ owns us in that sense, and the Bible describes us as bond slaves. And that means that we are either slaves to sin or we are slaves to righteousness. There's never a time when we are autonomous. And what I'm saying is that the idea of purity flows out of being a slave to righteousness. And when I say the word purity, most people think about it only in the, the context of social, uh, sexual morality, but God requires purity in all things. And what is purity? What is a, a definition for purity? Purity is to will only one thing. God's ways and not your own. Jesus' love for the Father was pure in that at all times and in all ways he submitted his own will to that of the Father. As we read in John 5.19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. 
And friends, the degree to which we exalt our own desires and ways over God is the degree to which we are impure. Romans 6.11 tells us, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then it says, therefore, which means as a result of that truth of being dead to our fleshly desires, but alive to God's desires, to being pure, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. So at its heart, purity is about recognizing what God has done and living in the truth of that new self. And impurity occurs because we counter that by thinking that we can live 60, 70, 80% of our mind and our heart and life walking in the spirit, but save the rest for sin. But God has claimed all of us. That's what it means to be a bond slave of righteousness. That's what it means to have been purchased with a price. God wants all of us. And Jesus describes himself in this morning's passage as abiding in his Father's love. It means that that is where he's anchored. That's where he stays. He doesn't step outside of it for short periods of time. He didn't depart from doing what he saw the Father doing. And according to John 15, Jesus then turns around to his disciples and he says, that's how I want you to live. Just as I abided in, was anchored in, and, and, and was fully enwrapped in the love of my Father, so I want you to abide in my love. And what is the natural parallel? Just as I submitted myself entirely to watching what the Father did and doing what he did, so I want you to follow my commandments. And what is that commandment? Notice it's singular in John 15. It's like all focused on this. Love others as I have loved you. Emulate that and you will be abiding in my love. On a practical level with regard to relationships, whether it's a parent-child or husband-wife or friend-to-friend, this means that you cannot live one day living for God as we come here and we all set aside all of the rest of the six days that we live for ourselves. In all of our activities, you must remember that you live in the presence of God. And the constant question is, what would God have you do? How does he want you to serve this person in that relationship? How can I extend his kingdom in this relationship? How can I foster unity and live out the gospel in this relationship? And I hope you can see why then, even just talking about inclusivity and purity so far, that biblical relationships are so much more than just talking about preparation for marriage or about trying to talk about boundaries between single guys and gals, because while those things are important, far more foundational is a biblical worldview. Far more foundational is a biblical worldview that we learn our entire lives about what God's love looks like and realize that that has got to work itself out through us in every single facet of our life, every relationship that we have. 
And for those of you parents in this room, that means that that should be a weekly conversation, if not a daily conversation with your children. I think too many are mistaken if they think that discussing relationships, particularly between men and women, means keeping children focused on schoolwork and work, and then when they're 13, suddenly broaching the topic of sexuality and and starting to plan a list of possible marriage candidates or releasing them to the world of dating. And before I move on, let me just encourage you parents, too. If you find that you have reached those later years with your children without having those conversations, don't despair, but start. You may not be able to convince your children to think differently, but God's word can. For his word is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it will break through even stony, hard, calcified connections, right? God created us to be relational people. With regard to the opposite sex, the question is not whether or when a person will think about them, but how. And the issue for you as a parent is not avoiding the topic as if it doesn't exist, but having healthy discussions with your children from the time that they're young and training them towards these principles that are reflective of that right side of that continuum and reflective of Jesus' love. Ideally, by the time your sons and daughters reach their teen years, what have you done? You've established a foundation from which you can discuss what each of their relationships look like, their friendships and so on, even potential future marriage. You can talk about them through and the filter of these principles. Because by that time, they will have years and years of development in inclusivity, self-sacrifice, self-control, purity, and so on. Now, a third element of Jesus' love is that it was self-controlled. And that term, self-control, is often a misunderstood one. Just like purity, most when they think of self-control, think of a person who acts in moderation, nothing too extreme. Others emphasize that self-control must mean that an individual holds down those natural appetites, like keeping the beast in the cage, right? But the Bible defines self-control actually as being passionate about the right things. Maybe that seems odd, but let me show why that's true. Ephesians 4.19 describes what it's like to lack self-control where Paul says they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So the Bible tells us that with each indulgence of the flesh, a person feels less and less satisfied, while he or she is at the same time persuaded that just a little more is the only thing that can fulfill So sin keeps crying, give and give, but it never says enough. And if our own insatiable desires were not enough, then the world and Satan come alongside those ungodly passions and intensify them. Well, self-control is not about setting boundaries around those. That insatiable flesh, like trying to hold an inflated beach ball under the water in a pool, right? 
You watch kids doing that, what do they do? They jump up on the beach ball and they try to push it down between their legs and pretty soon they tip over forward, right? And the ball pops out behind them, right? Right up the water. That's, that's what happens when you do that in, in the pool. I see it all the time every year at our house. That's not what self-control is. It's not about being people then who put all of that to the side, cage it up and have no passion like I said, God's word actually commands us to be a passionate people. As we read in Jesus' letter to the Laodicean church, what did he complain about? He said, I don't want passionless people. I don't want lukewarm believers. I want son and daughters who are zealous for the right things. For the things of my kingdom. He wants us to hate our sin and to be so moved by our gratitude for his grace that our love for him and for our neighbor means that we first seek the glory of God and their betterment. And as we've already seen in Jesus' life, his every motive, his every action were about the things of his father as he was led by the spirit. Listen to what John Piper once said. I think it's... It's a, it's a good, good quote. He's really quoting Jonathan Edwards and others before him, what they have said. But here it is. The reason that all of your efforts at conquering sin fail, in other words, the reason why your efforts at self-control fail, is that the power of sin comes from the promise of pleasure and is meant to be defeated by, fill in the blank for yourself, what do you think that blank should be? is meant to be defeated by the blood-bought promise of superior pleasure in God. So Piper goes on to say, let our flesh, the world, and Satan put up their promises. Give me the best you can give me. Right? That's what it's saying. We will match promise for promise. World? <laughs> God? Is there any comparison? And Piper finishes, nothing in this world can surpass in value and depth and height and durability. And he could have just added more and more of those words, the pleasures that God promises. And those are good words particularly the point that nothing can surpass the pleasures that God promises. And we have, to, we have to believe that. You have to know what those promises are. You need to understand them from God's word, and you have to have them before your mind. And then how does that look when it comes to relationships? Well, if we're struggling with lust, for example, where we realize self-control is not about pushing the lust down or caging the lust, but actually about being passionate for what God is doing in other people. We realize that we must move from looking at the opposite sex as an object to be lusted after and instead start to recognize that this person is a son or daughter of the king of kings, an individual who's likely a wife, a mother, or a future husband and father who will have a family, will serve the Lord. We need to be excited about that. We need to be passionate about how God is working in that individual to conform them more and more to his son. And we need to be passionate about being used as an instrument to encourage that process. 
And when we think about those things, friends, which is a far greater and superior promise, has eternal value. When we start thinking about those things, it's harder and harder to lust because we are operating in the mindset and worldview of holiness and righteousness. Or when we see what God is forming in our spouse or promises for our family, speaking of other relationships, it's harder to be impatient or demanding because we cling to the hope of what they will become. And we are not always so focused on what we don't like and what they are. So far we've seen that Jesus' love and consequently our own love for others was inclusive, that it was pure, that it is self-controlled. Another element with regard to Jesus' love is that it was fervent as opposed to being sporadic. Sporadic refers to the individual whose actions are governed by emotion without any forethought. And that person's level of commitment waxes and wanes based upon how they feel or what they believe they can get from or can control in a relationship. Was that how Christ's love was? No, we know that Christ gave up his own prerogatives, that he submitted himself to the life of a servant, that he died on a cross in our place. And Paul says in Philippians 2 what? Be like that. Imitate that love. So he does the same thing that Jesus has already commanded in John 15. Biblical love is fervent. It is constant. It increases more and more because it is ultimately not based upon the sporadic, impulsive elements of emotion and perceived desires and needs of the moment. It's instead, friends, and this is important, based upon the desire of the long-term betterment of the other person, even if it means sacrifice to ourselves. Do you see this constant theme that's underlying all of these things? The key is that love gives consistently, without interruption, even at great cost to itself. Jesus gave his life for us. God loved us to the degree that he sent his only begotten son as a substitute for us. And then in 1 John 3, 16, again, yet another person. Jesus, Paul, John, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Again and again, we are to emulate this love of Christ, to be inclusive, to be pure, to be self-controlled, fervent, self-sacrificial. We know, we watch especially this time of year as we read the later parts of the gospel accounts, how Jesus' love was not measured or governed by his feeling as he went to the cross with every emotion and instinct there in Gethsemane, telling him that he doesn't want that, praying, right? Asking the Father to remove that from him, but still saying, let thy will be done, not my own, even though I'm in agony, it never wanes. He clearly did not feel like enduring the beatings, hanging on the cross, enduring the Father's wrath, giving up his life. But he lays down his feelings before the Father and gives himself over to that will because he said, they will not master me. He shows us that love must be under the, and I'm not even going to say your control, must be under the Holy Spirit's control. 
God chose to love us. He chose to lay down his life for us. The danger of believing that in relationships, particularly between men and women, for example, that you fall in love is that you believe that you can fall out of love just as unexpectedly. That same thing, though, goes for friendships. They so often wax and wane, don't they? But I think you are like me. We are glad that God's love for us is not unpredictable. We're thankful that God's love is under his control and not based upon whim or feeling. And so we need to throw out the misconception that love is some kind of strange force that tosses us around like leaves in the wind against our will. We cannot justify doing what we know is wrong by saying that love grabbed a hold of us, made us behavior responsibility. That is not love. That is instead what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians as passionate lust. We express true love, friends, in obedience to God and fervent, devoted service to one another. We choose those behaviors. We can't just say to a friend or to a spouse that we just don't love him or like him like we used to. We know from Christ's example that he was moved with compassion for others and while he took short times to be by himself for prayer, for the most part he dedicated his entire life in ministry to the service of others. You see, the more we start to learn about Jesus' love, the more we realize Wow, this is an impossible type of love that God is calling me to in my relationships. Our desire is to to isolate. Our desire is to have that kind of exclusivity and separation. And and I just want to be absorbed in this other person every moment. And yet God is calling us in these ways, this others-oriented, this self-serving, this laying down of our lives for the betterment of others in such ways that we're going to have to pray that the Holy Spirit will work in us to will and to do His good pleasure in that regard. Because that is definitely not what our flesh wants. The final element that I want to mention, which is evident in Christ's love, is that He was always motivated to glorify the Father. Even as He taught the disciples to pray, His emphasis was that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and he would grant us the things that we would need, but according to the Lord's plan. And above all, that to God would be the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. That's that last part of that model prayer that he gives to the disciples. And hopefully the idea of God's glory versus our self-exaltation has been coming out in every element that we've looked at today. Knowing God, loving him above all other things is the only thing that not only makes what we've seen possible, but informs the direction and goal of our relationships. So here's an important thing. My friendships, my marriage, my parenting, my family... What's the end goal? Where's this this relationship going? 
Is it to glorify God? Is it to fulfill his kingdom? To expand his kingdom? Think again about our morning's passage in the very first verse, John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. How? By obeying Christ's command. And what was that command? Love others as Christ loved us. In every relationship that we have, we should be asking whether or not God is glorified in the things that we are doing and saying, in the direction that we're going, in the goals that we've set for this, this relationship. There are too many that are defined, like I said, not by God's glory, but by our self-exaltation, our self-fulfillment. How do you know the difference? If your relationships are glorifying God, then they will be centered upon Christ and will be bearing much fruit. That means that they will be marked by mutual edification. It means they will be marked by prayer, by godly conversation, by the goal of pursuing and furthering God's kingdom. Think about your friendships. Think about all of your relationships. When is the last time you did those things together? They will not be marked by endless superficial conversation or simply doing the same repetitive things together or a lack of vision or purpose. Those are typically sure signs that this is for my self-fulfillment and self-exaltation. The gospel must be the cornerstone because after all, that is loving as Jesus loved. And there is so much more that could be said and probably that should be said, but the overarching point is this. Jesus has called us to love in that same way because there is so much at stake God isn't just trying to tell, fit you into a system, friends. He's trying to say that just as all of redemption depended upon Jesus submitting his own ways to those of the Father's and abiding in the Father's love, is it too dramatic to say that God's redemptive work still depends upon our submission of our own ways to Christ in abiding in his love. I'm not suggesting that there's more to be added to Christ's atoning work, but there is an interesting comment by Jesus, ultimately by Paul there in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. How could anything be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Only this, that by emulating Christ's love in our relationships, both in the church and in the world, by living for God's glory in his kingdom, by dying to ourselves and living for the Lord, this is what happens, we carry the message of the gospel wherever we go, and in that sense, fill up in ourselves the only thing that's lacking in Christ's afflictions, which is spreading that truth to the ends of the earth, modeling that truth. Why does Jesus want you to live like he does? Because he wants other people to see it. It's true you will be more joyful. It's true you will edify others in those relationships but I think really at the heart of things is God's continuing redemptive work. He wants the world to see it. He wants, 
He wants the lost to see that our relationships aren't just a carbon copy of what the world sees. Sporadic, self-centered, self-exalting, exclusive relationships. Impure. May the Lord bless all of you as you navigate through the difficult and messy but God-ordained and God-blessed realm of relationships with one another. And as you seek to emulate Christ's love, may you find, not only, like I said, that you're more joyful, but that God's work extends through you. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your help in understanding, applying what we've been talking about today. We just have hit the surface of some of these things, trying to understand what it means to be ultimately motivated by your glory in our relationships, by asking hard questions. I ask that for all of us that you would give us impartial, objective eyes to see and and say, have we truly had a relationship that is all of these elements of Jesus' love for us? Do we truly have relationships that are focused on Christ as as the the cornerstone and, and your kingdom as the goal? And Lord, if we have found that these are not true of our relationships, may we be humbled, may we confess where we have sinned, and Lord, may you guide us in the next, in the right direction. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things, amen.